Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for October 14th, 2018. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Dan McClintock, Family Life and Missions Minister at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Enough Already? Thank you, Kurt, for that very appropriate introduction to our scripture passage this morning, and Anne for the children's time that fit very well with what I'm about to say. And Jeff, thank you for your prayer and for the litany that you read. If you've been with us in worship for the past several weeks, you'll be aware that since the beginning of September, We've been talking about the makings of a good life. So far, we've talked about the good life in terms of passion, integrity, wisdom, relationships, courage, and right living. Today, our theme is adversity. I must confess that for me, When I think about the good life, somehow adversity isn't the first thing that comes to my mind. I thought maybe it was the way I was defining adversity that was the problem. So I searched for some synonyms. Misfortune, trouble, hardship, disaster, suffering, sorrow, and misery. I can't say that my dreams of the good life would include any of these. The good life, ah, bring on the suffering, the hardship, and the misery. I'm reminded of the rabbi, Montiel like this, who turned to God and said, not that I'm complaining, it's nice to be called the chosen people, but really, can't you choose someone else for a while? As we consider adversity, certainly the biblical character Job surfaces as a prime example. I think most of us are familiar with the story but I'll attempt a brief recap as a reminder. We're told that Job is a righteous man who is blessed with great wealth and a family, sons and daughters. In the heavenly council, God asks the adversary for his opinion of Job's piety, and the adversary answers that Job is pious only because he has been blessed. He argues that if Job, if everything were taken away from Job, he would surely curse God. So the adversary is given permission to take away Job's fortune and to kill all of his children and his servants. Job nonetheless praises God, saying, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, 
and naked I shall return. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The adversary then inflicts Job's body with painful boils, leading Job to want to die. But even that is denied to him. At this point, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, try to console him. Their belief is that suffering is punishment for sin. So they advise Job to repent and seek God's mercy. But Job insists that he is righteous and innocent and pleads for an audience with God, a face-to-face encounter so that he can argue his case. Eventually, God speaks to Job from a whirlwind. God doesn't explain Job's suffering, nor defend divine justice, nor respond at all to Job's claim of innocence. Instead, God contrasts divine wisdom and omnipotence with Job's weakness. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, says God. In the end, Job recognizes God's power and his own lack of knowledge of things beyond me which I did not know. And he repents in dust and ashes. In the end, God restores restores Job's health, his fortune, and his family. And he lives to see his children to the fourth generation. Last week, Russ encouraged you to read or reread this story, as the case may be. Tennyson called it the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. Certainly, when it comes to facing adversity, Job more than qualifies, having lost his considerable wealth, all his children, and his good health. The passage Kurt read this morning from Job, chapter 23, has been described as Job's dark night of the soul. We hear Job searching in vain for God. Oh, that I knew where I might find God. I go forward, God is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides. I turn to the right, but still I cannot see God. If only I could vanish in darkness and thick darkness would cover my face. This dark night of the soul is described in a poem by St. John of the Cross, a 16th century Spanish mystic. The dark night is experienced by a person who at one time enjoys close communion with God, but who now is living through a crisis of faith where God seems no longer to be reachable. 
Thomas More, author of Utopia, counselor to Henry VIII, and High Chancellor of England, wrote, During the dark night, there is no choice but to surrender control. Give in to unknowing and stop and listen to whatever signals of wisdom might come along. It's a time of enforced retreat and perhaps unwilling withdrawal. The dark night is a profound initiation into a realm that nothing can prepare you for. St. Teresa of Calcutta, in her letters, describes a dark night of the soul which lasted nearly 50 years for her, with what she describes as only brief interludes of relief. You and I may never have experienced a dark night in the same sense as what these mystics describe, but we've probably all had the experience of feeling as though our prayers go unanswered or perhaps that they aren't being heard at all. Perhaps you know the story of a visitor who came to Jerusalem and saw the Wailing Wall. Not being too well versed in religion, he inquired of another tourist about the significance of the wall. The other tourist explained, this is a sacred wall, and if you pray here, God may hear your prayer. The visitor approached the wall and prayed, Dear God, bring sunshine and warmth to this beautiful land. A commanding voice replied, I will, my son. The visitor said, Bring prosperity to this land. Again, the reply came, I will, my son. Finally, the visitor prayed, let Jews and Arabs live forever together in peace. The voice answered, remember, you're talking to a wall. At one time or another, we've probably all felt as though our prayers amounted to nothing more than talking to a wall. I know there have been times when I have felt that way. So what's the answer? Do we stop praying, or do we continue praying even through the dry times? Through the dry times when God seems too distant to hear, let alone respond. Paul says in Corinthians, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Perseverance eventually leads to hope. Hardship, suffering, disaster, sorrow. If you've lived long enough, you've surely not escaped some sort of adversity. The loss of a loved one, loneliness, illness, financial difficulties, the consequences of addiction, broken relationships, 
the list goes on and on. Sometimes we bring those hardships on ourselves by acting irresponsibly. But sometimes they just happen and no one's to blame. When we're faced with adversity, how do we deal with it? That's the question. Does it make us stronger and more resilient? Or do we come out bitter and somehow twisted? I think either outcome is possible. Faced with adversity, we have a choice. I think we can allow adversity to make us harder and more bitter, or we can call on our faith, faith that we are not alone in our suffering or our sorrow, and trust that God understands exactly what we're going through. If the incarnation means anything, it means God is with us, knowing our human predicament. Does this mean we won't struggle, that we won't have doubts, that it's an easy road we follow? No. You may be walking into a realm that nothing prepares you for, but you won't be walking alone. I can't help thinking about the recent victims of Hurricanes Florence and Michael when we talk about adversity. Think about six feet of water in your home and what that would mean. How much would be lost? Or about those in Florida who will return to find nothing left of their house but a concrete slab. Or about the family that spent 20 years developing a business and now suddenly it's gone. And they'll tell you that they're the lucky ones because they're still alive and they didn't lose any loved ones. I'm glad that we're going to take a group to help start putting some of these homes back together in North Carolina on the weekend of November 8 through 12. I received an email report this week. Baptist on Mission is now working from 13 different sites and they've completed tear-out work on 1,900 homes there are still another 2,000 homes that need work. And that's before rebuilding can begin. Thousands of people were affected by flooding and they are projecting needing hundreds of volunteers for the next two to three years to get people back into their homes. In addition to sending volunteers from our church our November mission offering will go to Hurricane Relief so that those of you who can't go can have a way to be involved. On another front, I can't think of adversity without thinking of the people at the border who are fleeing horrible situations in their homeland, domestic violence, dangerous gangs, drug cartels, and making the arduous trek here hoping for a better life. 
I'm glad that our church is working with a young woman and her two children from Guatemala who are seeking asylum in our country. They are here legally, awaiting a hearing to determine whether or not they will be granted permanent status. In the meantime, we are doing what we can to accompany them and to provide some friendship and support. Yesterday, I mentioned already that some of our members prepared and served lunch to 120 homeless men at the men's shelter. We've been involved for years with our homeless neighbors through the men's shelter, the Urban Ministry Center, Room in the Inn, and Charlotte Family Housing. If you've ever talked with some of these folks, you're aware that they've known adversity and hardship up close. I'm glad that our church has an ongoing ministry to homeless folks in Charlotte. A few years ago, we committed half of our mission budget to Sedgefield Elementary School in an effort to make a real difference in the lives of those students, most of whom were underprivileged. We sent tutors and reading buddies and lunch buddies. We encouraged the staff at the school by helping with a staff lunch, by providing some gift cards for them during the holiday break. We did end of year book drives and last year sent every child home for the summer with 10 or more books. We packed snack bags so that 105 children could go home every Friday with some nourishing food. When we helped a little girl and her mom with some furniture, I saw two little dresses hanging by themselves in the little girl's closet, a couple of toys on the floor, no children's books in her room. And I was glad that we were reaching out to Sedgefield Elementary students. These kids have known adversity. Now, with the changes at Dilworth and Sedgefield, many of these same children, the children with whom we worked, are at Marie G. Davis, and some of our work is going to shift to that campus. When I first started thinking about this sermon, I was focused on the difficulties and hardships that we all face eventually, on how we as individuals respond to adversity in our own lives and the effect that response has on us. Someone, maybe Einstein, it's been attributed to him anyway, has said adversity introduces a man to himself or a woman to herself. It can have the effect of hardening our hearts and making us bitter or if we can somehow hold on to our faith and allow God, who knows what it is to suffer, allow God to share in our suffering, then adversity can make us stronger, more open, and more loving. It wasn't until I began to write the sermon that I started to think about how we respond to the adversity that others are going through. Job's friends responded by blaming the victim. Job's great suffering must be due to some sin that he committed. 
our response to the suffering of others is important because we're called to live in relationship, in community with one another. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to suffer with those who suffer, whether it be through the ministries of this church that I've mentioned or through other encounters that I know you have where you live and work. Sometimes responding to the misfortune of others means providing a meal for a homeless person or teaching a child to read or tearing out water-damaged walls and floors after a flood. And sometimes it means just being there, letting a person know you care by the simple force of your presence, reminding them that whatever the difficulty, whatever the adversity, they don't have to go it alone. And hopefully, your presence will in some way serve as a reminder of God's presence too. May it be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.